The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight I'd like to talk about mudita, um, appreciative joy or sympathetic joy. And uh, it's okay if in moments with these four divine abodes, these Brahma-viharas, it's really okay if in our experience in the healing that comes with deeper, stronger states of metta, compassion, karuna, mudita, appreciative joy, pekka, equanimity, you know, the heart will be moved and we'll, you know, want to get down on our knees and put our head down and with gratitude that these capacities or potentials of our heart are available because they are so healing. But it's also um, good for us to understand that these uh, four divine abodes are also skillful means and they exist for us human beings who have minds that are sometimes at least, if not most of the time, dominated by greed, hatred, and delusion. And as I mentioned, I think from coined by Sharon Salzberg, these mythologies of isolation and all the different, often arrogantly held ideas of separation, being apart, being alone, and the fear, and the greed, and the hate that ignorance that flows from those mythologies of isolation. So then, fortunately, there comes along a really wise person, like the Buddha, an awakened being, who creates a set of skillful means. Right. So the Dhamma, in the sense of the teachings of the Buddha, is designed specifically for us deluded beings. <laughs> Thankfully, right? We should be really grateful about that. So the teachings on metta, it's not for somebody who has uprooted greed, hatred, and delusion from their mind. It's for those of us with minds that are still infected with the habits of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so when we tap into the capacity of metta, there's just so much healing. Because the practice, even the idea, and then the idea leads to the practice, a way of paying attention, basically, like what we're keeping in mind and how we're keeping it in mind. For all four of the divine abodes, the strategies for what we keep in mind and how we keep it in mind that exist as a counterweight to the conditioning we have to greater and less degrees of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so it's nice to remember that, like, you know, we've talked a lot about metta, but last night Kamala talked about compassion. And normally when we're close to our own or other suffering, we get afraid or we get controlling or we close down or, you know, different kinds of less than helpful reactions to the proximity of suffering. And then we have this teaching and these practices where we're specifically keeping in mind the heart that's not afraid, the heart that's both moved, but not afraid by that movement that arises when we're close or proximate to suffering. And that powerful, sometimes wholesome wish that that suffering be alleviated, our own or another's, and how stabilizing that is, and it provides immunity from getting sucked into the fear of the suffering that we're close to, or wanting to close down, or wanting to control it, manage it, make it go away, I mean, it's, it's, of course, natural to want to alleviate the suffering, 
But we can do that, that work of helping, because we're afraid, we don't know how to be with the suffering, or we can do that compassionate action because we care. Regardless of whether it goes away, maybe it gets worse, but we're really acting on that caring, which is enlivening and liberating the heart of its fear of suffering, of its aversion to suffering. And the same is true with mudita, this appreciative joy, gladness. It exists as a teaching and, a pra and practices that help the heart be close to the success and the happiness, the flowering of others, you know? Because it's easy given our conditioning around greed and our comparing mind, the, the tendency to critique and have conceits of being better than, worse than, same as, you know, all these different ways. Part of this is just our conditioning as mammals, you know, where we're always seen in terms of social hierarchy. And so we can't help that. We notice how people are dressed, nicer clothes than me, not so nice, less nice than mine, you know, or whatever, even haircuts and kind of shoes people have and the nice or not so nice meditation equipment that people have, you know, <laughs> how still they sit and and we're, we're always doing that ranking. And so mudita practice is a way to be around other people where we can have a different relationship to the goodness, the beauty, the success we sense in others. So we don't have to be drawn in to those habits of reacting with that sense of, you know, quivering sense of self-worth and, and needing to shore it up, make ourselves feel better by putting somebody else down or putting ourselves above or explaining to ourselves why somebody's ranked above us. Well, they had this in their life. If I had that in my life, I'd be even further ahead. You know, it's just, uh, we, from an egoic, fearful, greedy, you know, a mind dominated with those very common um, tendencies, we don't know what to do with other people's success or happiness. Right? Do you know that feeling? <laughs> and in this way, you know, mudita is one of the, for me, you know, just the most healing, because it really addresses um, the problem with a lot of our social conditioning. It's interesting, uh, you know, with the Queen's passing, Queen of England's passing a week or so ago. I'm assuming everyone knows about that. Happened before we came on retreat. And all the, you know, the processions and stuff was happening. And, and uh, it's just interesting, like, how we can relate to somebody who's so adored and loved and, uh, you know, there are a little bit of news of just a lot of people waiting in line to pay their respects to the Queen. Forget if that happened before the retreat or maybe a day into the retreat. I, I saw that. And, uh, you know, a lot, the lines were really long. And, and just the, interesting to notice what our heart does with that. Like, do we want to diminish the Queen? Or do we want to elevate the Queen? more special than me, less special than me. And the thing about mudita, kind of, it's a way to um, protect the heart from needing to deal with things in terms of ranking better than, worse than, same as. And we can just, whatever the mind is perceiving, we're just perceiving it in terms of like, if we're sensing somebody's happiness, somebody's well-being, somebody's success, some beauty, goodness in somebody's life, 
we, we realize we have the capacity just to appreciate it on that simple level. It doesn't really matter. We don't have to justify it. But if the sense is, is that person is experiencing some success, some happiness, some well-being, great, great. I'm not imagining that that success or well-being is more than what it is or less than what it is, but I'm really happy that you're happy. I'm really happy that you're loved. I'm really happy that you're safe. I'm really happy that you're smiling. The Dalai Lama had this really wonderful, wise little one-off comment, you know, understanding mudita, developing mudita, increases our odds of happiness. I think the quote when I first heard it or read it was six billion to one, but now it's seven billion to one, or maybe it's even eight billion to one, I forget how many people on the planet, because in any moment, there are people experiencing well-being and happiness and success, right? I mean, right now in the room, we can sense somebody's body seems a little bit settled. Oh, may that happiness, as I sense it in you, continue and increase and never end. May your settledness, your ease of body, your comfort continue and increase and never end. And if you see somebody in the room who seems really uncomfortable in their body, then compassion will naturally flow. Oh, honey, May you find ways to be at ease with your conditions. Maybe it means stretching your leg out. Maybe it means using a chair. But may you find a way to be at ease with the conditions in your life. Because I care about your suffering. Whether I'm perceiving that correctly or not, if I am, I care about it. And in this way, these four trainings make the heart really nimble. You know, whatever's coming up, the Buddha's created an antidote from the noxious conditioning of greed, hatred, and delusion. The basic friendliness, the basic goodness of metta, loving-kindness, karuna, to be able to meet all the places where we bump into suffering, our own or others, mudita, for all those places in life we bump into the happiness and success, the well-being of others, and equanimity for everything else. <laughs> All the ambiguous places, confusing places. And as a backup for the first three, you know, that equanimity gives resilience to the friendliness, to the compassion, to the um, appreciative joy. Because otherwise we're destined, you know, the patterns of greed, hatred, and delusion will continue endlessly, and they, the more they're practiced, the more well-greased they are. So we need this intervention. And um, when you get a chance to do mudita as a formal meditation practice, you know, where you're, you know, you just start with somebody who you know who's experiencing some obvious success or well-being, happiness in their life. And then, you know, you could move to your benefactor and bring to mind that person's happiness or success and some dear ones and onward from there. So the idea, though, is that uh, we're going to be keeping one thing in particular in mind. And, and it will remember that image of from Joseph Goldstein that I mentioned of cool, the cool water of love, spiritual love, hitting the uh, red-hot metal of our habit energies, you know, like envy and jealousy. And we just keep, like, remembering that, oh, what I sense is that you're happy, that you have some well-being, that you're experiencing some success. May that success continue. May it increase, may it never end. May that be a real blessing in your life as if we were to feel that your success is a cause for my own joy, sympathetic, appreciative, empathetic joy. 
That's why the, the Dalai Lama says, you know, it increases our odds. Even when you just see somebody eating something you think they shouldn't be eating, but that they're delighting in. Even something that simple and, you know, imperfect. Oh, you seem to be really enjoying that. That seems to be bringing you some comfort as much as I can tell. I understand that that's... Now, you wouldn't say all this. You'd have a simple <laughs> phrase. But, but the feeling behind it is like we're not ignorant that that's a pretty limited joy. But instead of saying to the, in our mind and our heart, hey, that's a pretty limited joy. You should watch out, you know. We treat people like grown-ups. Like, yeah, you're, you're making choices and you're experiencing some happiness, temporary happiness. And, and that's temporary happiness is temporary happiness. May it continue, may it increase, may it never end. Right? May it have other kinds of positive reverberations. As opposed to, you idiot. Or, well, maybe I should have that too. <laughs> they're, e they're eating ice cream. I was recently, <laughs> speaking of the Brahma Viharas, a lot of you know the TV series Ted Lasso, which is, stands out as kind of popular TV just because there's a, it stars somebody who has not perfect qualities, but some capacity to appreciate life, um, among other things. And uh, he'd bring in these nice biscuits, cookies for his boss. And uh, one day he brought in a box of chocolates along with the biscuits and said, you should put the chocolate between the two cookies. <laughs> and, she, and by the time he got that out of his mouth, she had already done it, you know, and was biting into it. And just a simple moment of appreciation. Oh, you know how to find some basic sense pleasure. Now, of course, if somebody is having a, a more profound kind of happiness and success, you really have... You know, you don't know for sure, but some sense that they're really into their practice, really settled into the meditation, really walking the path of the Buddha. And that appreciation can be really inspiring and uplifting for our own heart. And remember, as Kamala and I have said, you know, we're, we're not exactly clear what our metta, our compassion, our appreciative joy, our equanimity is doing for the others can't do harm, right? Probably a force for good, but for sure we can directly sense the healing effect in our own mind. How protecting it is and how it uproots it rewires those tendencies towards jealousy and envy and issues of self-worth and shame, not being good enough, because we're not using our experiences to reinforce those tendencies. When we run into somebody who's shiny and happy, it makes us happy. I'm so happy that you're happy. May your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. There's a well-known uh, Western monk who died not that long ago, uh, Venerable Yanaponika Tara. He was a Westerner, but went to Sri Lanka when he was a younger man and ordained and was a Buddhist monk for many decades and wrote some really important books that supported Western um, kind of early Buddhism uh, practice. And he has an article that you can get online if you want to download it at some point. And it's titled, Is Unselfish Joy Practical? And these teachings, the Buddhist teachings, are very practical, pragmatic. This is what is so awe-inspiring, right? So mudita, even though the Buddha is not alive, it's totally appropriate to have mudita, that somebody had the kind of clarity, you know, many centuries ago in a different culture, but still that clarity 
passed down for so many generations is still so useful now, 2,500 years later, in a very different culture, and yet it's just like so profoundly useful, practical for us to hear this and to put it into appreciation. So this is, I just wanted to read some of this uh, article just because it's so, it's fun and it's direct. He says, or writes, admittedly the negative impulses, oh, and by the way, I changed the pronouns in the article. Um, Admittedly, the negative impulses like aggression, envy, jealousy, etc., are much more in evidence than positive tendencies towards communal service, mutual aid, unselfish joy, generous appreciation of the good qualities of others. Yet, as all these positive features are definitively found in people, though rarely developed, it is quite realistic to appeal to them and activate and develop that potential by whatever means we can in our personal relationships and education, etc. And then he quotes the Buddha, a very well-known passage where the Buddha is saying something like, if it were impossible to cultivate the good, I would not tell you to do so. And he goes on, he doesn't quote this in the article, but, but because it is possible, I, I tell you to do so. And he says the same thing about abandoning the unskillful. If it were impossible to abandon the unskillful, I wouldn't tell you to abandon what is unskillful. But it is possible to abandon the unskillful. And lo and behold, what do you think is the easiest way to abandon all the different manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion? Any of you elementary school teachers? If you want to remove a behavior in one of your students, or any of you married or have a long-time partner and you want to remove (laughs) one of the unwholesome habits of your partner, right? Do you do you nag that person or that student, you know, stop it, stop it? It doesn't usually work very well. But if you help them, maybe even stealthily, cultivate the opposite, they'll have to abandon the unskillful, right? Because negative qualities don't really coexist very well in the heart and mind at the same time. It's really an either-or proposition. Try it, like, when you really have a lot of hate and then you bring in some metta, some compassion for how unpleasant the hatred is, how long does the hatred stay? If you really have some compassion for yourself, for that negative, painful quality of hatred. Because once we're aware that there's anger and have a balanced, like either with Vipassana or with Metta practice, Karuna, compassion practice, and we have that presence, that balanced, intimate presence with the emotion of anger, is it really right to call it anger? I mean, it can. the mind's very quick. We can go from a moment of being caught and acting the anger out to a moment of real balance and real freedom with the anger. And then we can, the quality of attention or awareness could waver and we could be sucked back in. But in any one moment, so this is part of the, the power of these four Brahma-Viharas is the kind of protection they give. And then in that protection, we develop a different relationship, like in the case of mudita, with quali- qualities like conceit and envy and jealousy. Because once we see it replaced with that sympathetic appreciation, appreciating the good and the well-being of others, then, you know, wisdom understands like, oh, that's interesting. That jealousy, that envy felt so like a real edifice in terms of how I've been relating to that person. But now it's just not there. So even like down the road, the next time that jealousy or that envy or that conceit gets triggered, there's going to be Part of the mind stream is that experience of mudita, 
Well, that's right, I can appreciate this. And it starts to poke holes. It almost makes our habits of jealousy and envy more porous, easier to deal with, less seductive, less seemingly solid, like I'm the jealous one, I'm the envious one. I don't think it's fair that it's this way. You know, and wanting to undermine or just having to lie to ourselves, like why other people are so liked. You know, and then we have to tell all kinds of, you know, use deceit basically internally to make, it doesn't really make ourselves feel better, but we're desperate to feel better, so we do it anyway. Because we don't know how to appreciate. So then he continues writing, um, if this potential for unselfish joy is widely and methodically encouraged and developed, starting with the Buddhist child, or for that matter, with any child, and continued with adults, individuals, and Buddhist groups, including the Sangha, the monastic Sangha, the seed of mudita can grow into a strong plant, which will blossom forth and find fruition in many other virtues as a kind of beneficial chain reaction, magnanimity, tolerance, generosity of both the heart and purse, friendliness, and compassion. When unselfish joy grows, many noxious weeds in the human heart will die a natural death, or will at least shrink. Right? The Buddha, in one of the images that I really like, when he talks about the hindrances, he uses, like, are we feeding or are we starving? And you know, when we when mudita becomes a new habit that we can pull out during the day, you know, we train formally in a meditative way, but then it becomes more the inclination, more available during our daily lives. And then, you know, we starve those habits of envy, jealousy, conceit, comparing mind, because we have another option. And when we're using mudita, appreciating the good, then we're not watering those seeds of envy, jealousy, comparing mind, conceit, and they die a natural death, which is so wonderful. And the other thing is so much of the insight, the learning in our awareness practice is because of contrast. So when we know better, because we practice mudita, the heart that isn't envious, but is appreciative, then little envies, little jealousies stand out so much more because of the contrast of knowing the mind, the heart, that's appreciative, that can appreciate the good, the well-being, the success of others, the happiness of others. It just starts to stand out. And when it stands out, we really see it's not for my benefit, it's not for anybody's benefit. It's a burden on the heart. It's a noxious weed that needs to be uprooted one way or another, because it's not helping anybody. Yeah, so let me just, I guess I didn't finish that sentence. When unselfish joy grows, many noxious weeds in the human heart will die a natural death, or at least shrink. Jealousy and envy, ill will in various degrees and manifestations, cold-heartedness, miserliness, also in one's concern for others, and so forth. Unselfish joy can, indeed, act as a powerful agent in releasing dormant forces of the good in the human heart. Yeah, and so just to reiterate that point, the easiest way to uproot or the easiest way to at least bring in some immunity from the unskillful habits that we all have is to cultivate the good. And these four Brahma Viharas are 
really powerful ways to protect our heart from these really unwholesome tendencies that we have. And he continues writing, We know very well how envy and jealousy, the the chief opponents of unselfish joy, can poison a person's character, as well as the social relationships on many levels of life. They can paralyze the productivity of society, of governmental, professional, industrial, and commercial levels. Right? He's like writing for government officials. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You know, it's, uh, I remember someone, when I practiced at a monastery in Thailand, I remember somebody telling me, maybe it was one of the monks, I forget, but there was a time when the government officials in Thailand were telling some of the, the monks, you know, you've got to cut out this renunciation stuff because it's not good for the economy. <laughs> and it's this sort of same thing, you know, we, are we, you know, what kind of society do we want? Because as animals, we just want to survive. But as fully human, moral, spiritual beings, we want to be free. You know, we want to be free of jealousy. We want to be free of envy. We want to be free of anything that weighs down our heart. So as long as we're alive, living this life, a spiritual person aspires to be free. And afterlife, who knows? But right now, that we know well. And survival is part of the equation, but it isn't the only game in town. To survive if it means causing a lot of other people to suffer, not a, not a lot of us, maybe in this room at least, would take, up, take us up on that. Like, oh yeah, if my life, continuing my life, depended on me ending all of your lives, I mean, we probably don't know, when we don't need to deal with hypotheticals, but clearly that would take some reflection to know what to do with that kind of thing. And we all sort of feel that way anyway, because most of us live a pretty privileged life. And in a world where life eats life, you know, it's really poignant when we shop, when we make choices in life. We're not immune from causing harm in our choices, right? And the question is, does that truth cause us to close our heart off? Or are we using the four Brahma Viharas to really meet that truth honestly and affect how the kind of choices that we make when we shop for food or just any kinds of choices that we make that have all kinds of reverberations? Because, because we're choosing to live spiritual lives, we're interested in making choices that lead to freedom from these noxious, heavy qualities of the mind. That's what is becoming, gradually, more and more important. Not how safe we feel because we have one of those really big cars. Now, big cars are nice when you're on an interstate and you're up against even bigger semis, right? It's totally understandable we want houses that keep us cool when it's hot and warm when it's cold and clothes that make us feel safe and comfortable and, you know, all the things that possessions can bring us. But when we're afflicted by envy and jealousy and a critical mind, a comparing mind, it doesn't matter how affluent we are, we're just suffering, right? We're just suffering. You know, and it's like uh, depicted in one of the realms of existence. I don't know if it was in the early uh, depictions of the Wheel of Life, but in the later depictions in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they have a category called the Warring Gods, a little bit like the Titans, if you know your Greek mythology. And... uh, These are depicted as beings who have really, really nice conditions, like angelic conditions. 
a condition, a circumstance that any human would just like, you know, the best suburb, or not even a suburb, you know, like Santa Barbara. (laughs) 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 Or wherever are. Not to put Kamala on the spot, but Maui. (laughs) Which is a paradise. I mean, when you go there, I've had the good fortune to go there a few times, it's really just, just the whole vibe is really special. And, you know, this is a pretty special place right here, right? So, um, see, where I was going with that? (laughs) 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 I guess uh, Maui confused it. Oh, yeah, the the Titans, yeah. So the warring gods, so they have it really nice, but what is their mind obsessed about? Beings that have even more refined, subtle existence. So it's depicted in the Tibetan Wheel of Life, if you've ever seen, you know, it's this circular thing that has a lot of Buddhist teachings embedded in. And in the Tibetan version, it's all held by a monster of impermanence, a beast. But anyway, so this realm, they have the little mountain, Mount Mero, and beings further up in more refined angelic realms um, are really bugging these warring gods who have really nice conditions, but they can't get it out of their mind that there are beings with even nicer conditions. <laughs> so they'd have no appreciation of their own, what to do with their own existence, because they're constantly trying to get up there to the nicer place and constantly slipping back down to their place, because that's your karma, to be in the realm that they're in, like we're in the human realm. Or you, you live with the conditions you have. Like each of us, we were born into some location, culturally, economically, in terms of our physical health and bodies. And, uh, you know, how much jealousy and envy can keep us from doing the one thing we can do. Like, I wonder what peace and freedom and well-being might look like when conditions are like this. Because for me right now, in this moment, conditions are like this. And that's a spiritual attitude. And, it, and, and one of the things we can do when conditions are like this is we can appreciate, when we do bump into beings who have nicer conditions, we can appreciate that, how nice it is for you to have those nicer conditions. I'm somebody who, I, I don't know if I'd actually like it, but I've appreciated people with those fancy camper vans. And I notice in the parking lot <laughs> two interesting-looking camping vans, you know. And there's something, I don't know, it, it may be more people who have more male masculine conditioning, but there's something about, like, total independence, not dependent on anybody. I've got everything in my van I could ever need. I can go anywhere. <laughs> I saw once on the Internet one of those vans that, uh, I mean, it was literally over a million dollars, and it was like, you could drive through mountains for weeks on end. It was like a little, not a little, it was bigger than a tank, actually, on some truck chassis, I forget what it's even called. But like, there's no end to this. And then, so just notice what kind of triggers, oh, that looks nice. Oh, I'd like that. And even like Cloud Mountain itself. Because we could be appreciating, like we did at lunch today with the executive director, you know, just the good karma of Laura and her partner who have really been the backbone of this place from the beginning. And, uh, or we could want it for ourselves. I want a cabin in a place like, no one's using that cabin at the top of the hill, you know. (laughs) I'll go get a lottery ticket and then I'll, Entice Laura with a check. (laughs) Maybe I can live here. Or I'll buy a place like this. But I'll have even bigger cedar trees. (laughs) And on and on. And it's just like one entanglement after another. But we could just appreciate that a place like Cloud Mountain exists. And that people like us get to come here. And even when we can't come here because we're sick or we don't have time off from work or have to raise children or a parent needs us, we can appreciate that other people get to go. 
Well, may you be happy. May your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. And just really have that appreciation. Or maybe you've always wanted to go on a month-long retreat but could never swing it. We could still appreciate the people who can go on a month-long retreats. One of the beautiful things in Asia is the mudita that the lay people have for the monastics, the nuns and the monks. You know, for whatever reason, they're not nuns and monks. You know, complicated reasons, whatever they might be. But it doesn't stop them. It's sort of a built into the culture to deeply appreciate the people that made the choice to be a nun or a monk and to live that way in that simple way to have more time to practice. And so they're so grateful to, I mean, not, I'm sure, exceptions, but having been there several times, it's just so clearly part, like in Miramar and Thailand and, and other places, you know, you can't fake that kind of appreciation that you sense when uh, they're interacting with the monks and nuns. So grateful, so happy to support their lives. And then one more little paragraph here from Yana Panika Tara. Mudita will also vitalize and ennoble charitable and social work. While, while compassion is or should be the inspiration for it, unselfish joy should be its boon companion. And he's going to go on and talk about this, but just learning, and Kamala mentioned this in one of her set of instructions, maybe today or yesterday, um, but about how compassion just comes in and works with the metta, and the mudita will come in and work with the compassion, or equanimity will come in and support the metta. Don't, you know, we practice them individually so we can really learn to recognize how to use it as a skillful means. But in daily life in particular, it's just sort of those tendencies for metta and compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity, they're just working nimbly. That's really one of the characteristics of these divine abodes, is they know how to show up. And so he writes here, Mudita will prevent compassionate action from being marred by a condescending and patronizing attitude, which often repels or hurts the recipient. Also, when active compassion and unselfish joy go together, it will be less likely that works of service turn into dead routines performed indifferently. Indifference, listlessness, boredom are said to be the distant enemies of mudita. You know, as well as envy and jealousy that I've been talking about. They can be vanquished by an alliance of compassion and unselfish joy. And interestingly, what do you think is the near enemy of mudita? It looks and feels, it can look and feel somewhat like mudita, but is actually counterproductive. So when we're appreciating the happiness of another, right, the mind can sort of get caught up in the froth of that appreciation, the exuberance of that appreciation. And you probably have seen this sometime where you're the one who's experiencing some success, some happiness, and a friend maybe is like really excited for you so excited that they get lost in their own excitement and you don't feel like they're really that connected to you. <laughs> they're kind of in their own world, you know, so happy in their ideas of who you're going to become or your idea, their ideas of who you are now that this great thing has happened to you, that they're not actually there connecting intimately with the happiness that you're experiencing and reverberating with that happiness, with their own happiness, for your happiness. Which is a wonderful thing to be around when someone actually has mudita, it doesn't make us feel uncomfortable, right? It's something, it can, it can be a sort of a, a reverberation just sort of building on itself, like 
knowing that our happiness is a cause for other happiness also makes us happy, <laughs> which maybe makes them happy, which makes me happy. <laughs> and it just goes on and on like that, like a blossoming of joy, right? It's sort of the opposite of a panic attack. I'm sure some of you have had panic attacks where we start to feel a little panic, a little anxious, and the mind kind of zeroes in on it and amplifies the experience of anxiety. So the anxiety seems bigger because that's all we're looking at. And because it seems bigger, we look harder at it. So it seems bigger and it can kind of explode. I'm sure some of you are nodding because you probably have had panic attacks. I've had some in the past. And there's, there's sort of an equivalent with the blossoming of really any of the Brahma Viharas, but in some ways Mudita is especially designed for that kind of reverberation of joy, where joy is feeding on joy. And it can be just a, a real um, extinguishing of any dead weight in the heart. And it's... Uh, I was talking to somebody today about this. It's like when we touch into joy in this way, this appreciative joy, or I like how he says it, this unselfish joy, then it it, it has a really significant um, deconditioning. Like all of our tendencies to have a negative attitude about the world. Now there's a lot wrong with our world, there's a lot of suffering and a lot of that suffering seems to us, to me, unnecessary. And yet, there's a lot of suffering and injustice and unfairness. And, uh, but that's not the whole picture. And our minds, we like kind of simple stories. Life sucks. <laughs> But it's not that simple. There's a lot of beauty and there's a lot of goodness. And interestingly, a lot of the beauty and goodness is intertwined with the horror and the meanness. Like how people are showing up when things are really difficult. That's some of the beauty that really gets our attention. Like the nobility. Like Kamala and I were reflecting on the queen uh, earlier in the retreat and just, uh, you know, in my mind, you know, it's just my imagining, but what a thankless job. You know, just having to be this figurehead for so many people and live up to an image impossible to live up to, right? And no escape. Spotlight always on you. And, and to kind of uh, be all in, <laughs> you know, for 90, what is it, 96 years, until the very end. I mean, the queen was working until a very short while ago. Now, I know there's a lot we can criticize about the monarchy and just the history and the oppression connected with the monarchy. So I'm not, I'm not kind of making any point about the history of kings and queens, but just about this person with this particular karma, nobody asks for their karma. They, they get it, you know, the continuation of causes and conditions born in this place and to kind of show up for that. So just to be able to appreciate um, like, like how we use these different locations. They can be a real cause for yeah, just fixed views but there's a way to look at everything in a way that promotes wholesome qualities of mind. And that's really what, you know, it's central to Dharma practice. And I'll just end with that point I made at the beginning. It really matters what we pay attention to, and it really matters how we pay attention. This is the primary way we create the future. So being on a metta retreat for five weeks, and learning about the other divine abodes and getting interested in them. Like now, you know, hopefully next couple days still on retreat, you'll just notice moments, K 
capable of, where it's appropriate to appreciate. And just let that feed right in, be an inspiration to your metta practice. And as Kamala said with compassion, you don't necessarily need to change the phrases. Or sometimes like when I do that, when there's some of that flavor of mudita and I'm doing metta practice like I've been doing these days with you all, and I get to the phrase, you know, I like to say, may your heart be happy and peaceful. And then, and may that happiness continue and increase and never end. I give myself a little time to delight in the image of their heart being happy and peaceful. Like, oh, and that makes me happy imagining your heart happy and peaceful. And remember the proximate cause for metta is seeing the good in people. And so we can, that appreciation is not that different than the metta. It's just a more specific flavor of that goodness of heart that really knows how to be intimate, really knows how to appreciate the good in others, the success that others experience. And I, I think I just want to give credit to Guy Armstrong because I think that's where I heard the, that those three phrases that I like to use with more formal mudita practice. And, but I sneak it in a lot. May your happiness continue or may your joy continue. You can put whatever word that you're sensing in that other person. May it continue, may it increase, may it never end because the words themselves really... Um, help me sense that generosity, that expansive and eventually boundless quality of appreciation, seeing the good, appreciating the good. And it just makes it, when we then catch ourselves parsing out our appreciation, like, have you noticed sometimes, you know, you're, you're kind of, who's, well-being, whose success, whose whatever is worthy of my appreciation, as if it's a limited resource, or appreciating others, or seeing the good in others. And then let that be a cause for humor. Like, oh, that is so funny. Like, what am I afraid of? So just as you're, you know, moving about and appreciating the big trees and the nice cars or camper vans that people have or whatever it is that you sense in other people, you know, you can eat that much. It's like, oh, your digestion must be so good. May it continue. May your digestive fire be able to consume whatever you put inside. I mean, that's a beautiful wish for someone, right? And what what is... The key is to notice, well, what is the effect on my own heart when I pay attention in that way, reflect and relate in that way, when I really get good at appreciating what is worthy of appreciation? What's the actual effect? That's how we judge, how we sense the value of these practices. Like, what does it set in motion? Ignorance? heaviness. And of course, it isn't about any public show of the mudita, right? And that's why it's nice to do it as a meditative, silent meditative practice, because it isn't about that exuberance and acting it out. Now, we do that sometimes, like we'll get some kind of contact success by being exuberant about somebody else's success. I think that's what we do with sport, sports teams, and it's like, you know aligning with other people. But that's, there's a little desperation under some of that. So it's nice, like quiet mudita. The heart can be really opening in a beautiful way, but nobody needs to know about it or appreciating others. I mean, there may be times where the flowering involves saying something to the person, but it doesn't have to. So don't think of it that it has to be something that is acted out in public. And you know, um, whether we realize it or not, the way we're perceiving, the way we're paying attention, it's all a construction anyway. So 
you know, we think when we're parsing out our appreciation, like the way I'm constructing reality right now, the way I'm assessing whether your happiness is worthy of my appreciation, we just imagine that that's somehow the truth. But we're kind of making it up as we go. Like how we pay attention and what we pay attention to is how we... So given that there's a real powerful aspect of construction, then the question is, well, what kind of world do we want to construct? Our world where the mind notices what is worthy of appreciation or a mind that is desperately trying to parse out appreciation without running out. <laughs> you know, or like, God forbid, appreci appreciating somebody's happiness too much, whatever that might be. Like, uh, I mean, I, I found that really useful, like, what am I what am I afraid of? And I think what I found is uncovering my own pain at not having enough. And that it, the ironic thing is when we're really appreciating somebody's happiness, the heart feels really full. Whenever we're in touch with joy, whatever the cause, whether it's this appreciative joy, appreciating the goodness, the success of others, or other causes for joy. And that's important to realize we need joy. You know, I'll just mention in, in some of the other deva realms, you know, just at least as the myths or stories, legends, maybe reality, Kamala was saying the other night, you don't have to believe it, but it's true. <laughs> but in any case, you know, imagining realms of existence where instead of macaroni and cheese, it is the bliss of joy that is enlivening to those beings. And when you touch it to real joy, we feel fed, we feel awake, the whole system feels complete, not forever, but for some time, right? If you remember times when there was a really healthy, not a neurotic joy, right? It takes some practice actually to be with joy in a balanced way, to really trust it and to let it have its effect. And that's part of the work of mudita, is not just connecting with the joy of mudita, but really learning to trust it and learning to let it have its effect, its deconditioning effect, to feel fed by it, to feel changed by it. So, being here, you know, we can appreciate not only our own good fortune, but in particular right now, appreciating everybody's good fortune being on retreat here in this beautiful place with these powerful teachings from the Buddha, with all the supportive conditions, and really just sensing the deep healing that's happening and all the goodness that's here. And may all this goodness continue and increase and never end and happily sharing all the goodness here, all the goodness we sense in our fellow retreatants, and happily giving it all away, which is a cause for even greater happiness. May our practice, our good lives, our sincere efforts be a cause for goodness, and we give this goodness away. And may that be cause for even more goodness. And may all this goodness continue and increase and never end. Thanks for listening.
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.